Rachel Deere, host of today's program, COVID-19 Critical Care, What Providers Need to Know. This is the May 15th update of DKB Med Radio's coronavirus educational series, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. Thank you for joining us. As a reminder, we are now providing twice-weekly 15-minute webcasts and podcasts featuring the latest news, treatment updates, and clinical considerations, as well as answering your questions about COVID-19. These will be available on Wednesday evening and Friday morning. Sign up at covid19.dkbmed.com to be sure you get the latest updates. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CME and CE information. To attest for CME and CE credit, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. There you will find all of our previous COVID-19 programs and have access to other free CME and CE programs on a wide range of topics. Slides from today's presentation, as well as all previous presentations, can be found in the Resource Center. Today's learning objectives are define PPE, distinguish between airborne, respirator, contact precautions, and droplet and contact precautions, and list three aerosol-generating procedures. Again, I'm very happy to introduce Sue Hansen, a clinical nurse specialist at Harborview Medical Center in Seattle. This is the first part of Sue's series on PPE in the hospital setting amidst the pandemic. Sue, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Before we begin, I'd like to thank the generous support of DKV Med, Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. PPE, so personal protective equipment, what is it? We're gonna talk about what it is, when do we use it, where do we use it? We're also going to talk about airborne versus droplet precautions, and also look at uh, aerosol generating procedures that you would need to be mindful of when uh, you choose your PPE. So PPE, it is specialized clothing or equipment worn by an employee for protection against infectious materials. This is the definition from OSHA, the Occupation Safety and, and Health Administration. OSHA issues guidance on workplace health and safety. They issue the regulations required to use PPE in healthcare settings, and they also issue guidance on uh, health and safety issues in any other workplace like construction. This is different than the CDC. The CDC issues recommendations on the type of PPE to wear under what infectious circumstance. They are different agencies. And because of this, this is why you will find variations in practice uh, regarding PPE. The CDC and the World Health Organization as well, they issue recommendations, but these are only recommendations. Institutions do not have to follow them. Some institutions follow the CDC religiously, some institutions follow the WHO and other institutions use a combination of practices that um, are supported by both the CDC and the WHO. OSHA, on the other hand, those are strict regulations for which an entity can be cited or fined if they do not follow. Types of PPE used in the healthcare setting, there's many. These are just probably the top six that we use regarding infectious diseases, gowns, respirators, face shields, masks, goggles, gloves, and we're gonna go over those a little bit individually so I can uh, show you some examples. The first is gloves. Uh, they come in two main buckets or categories. They can be medical examination gloves or they can be surgical gloves. 
Medical examination gloves are the typical ones that come in boxes of 50 or 100. They can be vinyl, nitrile, or latex, but primarily they are made of a synthetic material. Um, an example of this is vinyl gloves. They are synthetic, they are less allergenic, they are very loose fitting. Uh, they're not appropriate for uh, aseptic practices, but they are good for uh, routine tasks as well as they are less allergenic than uh, say latex gloves. The next type of gloves that we use very frequently are nitrile gloves. These two are synthetic. They can be sterile or non-sterile, but they have excellent strength and they're great for chemical protection. Patients and healthcare staff have less allergenic reactions to these, but they uh, are less elastic and they are less sensitive. And there are certain times, especially during procedures or surgery, where you really do need to maintain the elasticity for dexterity and procedures and the sensitivity. And then the third type of glove that is used frequently are latex gloves. These are natural, naturally made from rubber. They fit great and they maintain the dexterity of the individual. They have great sensitivity. These are used primarily in the operating room where you need to maintain your sensitivity. But after using these uh, for a while, many, many staff have become allergic to these type of gloves. And so um, they have begun to manufacture synthetic gloves that are sterile, that can be used under these sterile conditions. But again, they just do not have the same sensitivity as true latex gloves. For gowns, again, there's all different kinds. There are disposable, such as this one. This is plastic. This comes in um, probably a box of 25 to 100. These are disposable. This is what we use when we go into uh, certain isolation rooms. They're handy, um, but they can be expensive as well. Um, the others are reusable. The first one here is a surgical gown. This is a sterile gown. It comes individually wrapped. You need to take care when you're donning and doffing this and so as to not contaminate yourself or the gown. Um, and this goes right into the laundry system, whether that's your institution or you ship out uh, for your laundry services. The next one is also a reusable gown. This, I see this quite frequently used in other types of isolation type situations. This can come in a pack of 10 to 25. This is also uh, used in situations where you're doing non-sterile bedside procedures or uh, big dressing changes. These work great. You can doff those appropriately and then they too go in your standard laundry services. Face protection. There are so many products on the market, I cannot even tell you, but we're going to do a little side-by-side -side comparison of cloth, surgical, and respirator masks. Technically, respirator masks are not masks, they're respirators, but I put them in this category because most people uh, think of them as a mask and they have a lot of questions about the differences between all three. A cloth mask is just that, it's one that you can make at home. These filter very little. This is what the CDC recommends for the general public. They do not really help you, but they do protect the person next to you in case you have a cold or you're sneezing. These are really good to wear when you go into like a crowded grocery store or something to something like that. They do protect against large droplets, but again, those are your large droplets, not somebody else's. And it can be loose fitting, so it's important to wear it appropriately. Then you have the surgical masks. Um, this is what we use in hospitals mostly. These are used in surgery. They do have to be donned appropriately. These can protect you from large particles 
um, such as blood, large droplets, tissue sometimes, they are disposable and they can be loose fitting. So it's important that these are uh, donned appropriately as well um, to minimize any risk of exposure. And the third one is respirator mask. This is an N95 mask, this specifically in 1860. This can protect you against very, very fine particles. This is what you would wear if you would go into a room with someone who is under airborne respirator precautions. They can also protect against large droplets. This has to be custom fitted. We are fitted every year to make sure that it is appropriate size and the appropriate type of N95 for us and that it still um, seals appropriately. You are not to wear this mask if you have a very large beard or a mustache or a lot, a lot of facial hair because you will not get the seal that you need to protect yourself. Face protection, goggles, shields, eyewear. Again, so many on the market. This is a face shield. It can protect your entire face. It needs to go below your chin. I personally like this because I can wear my glasses at the same time and then you can wear your mask underneath this as well. You can use this not just in isolation rooms or in droplet isolation rooms, but uh, you can use this when you're doing big dressing changes or wound care where you feel there might be some splatter. The next are goggles. Uh, if you notice, they have like the little side panels. These are the ones that you should be wearing. Your own glasses do not substitute for any of these examples of eyewear. You would have to wear your glasses underneath of these. And then here are goggles. Those have a little rubber strap on the back, just like swimming goggles, and they cover the entire upper, the entire circumference of your eyes. Respirators, air purifying systems. These are the two I'm most familiar with, but there are others out there. First is a PAPR, which stands for Powered Air Purifying Respirator. This comes with a hood or a shroud. A shroud can go down below your shoulders. It has a battery pack that you fit around your waist and it has a hose that connects to that hood. A second picture there, you'll see a person uh, wearing that. This respirator is battery powered, so it has to be charged. There's batteries that uh, connect onto the bottom of it and it forces clean air up through a filter and into that hood. Low example is what we call a capper, and this is by a company called Max Air. This is a controlled air purifying system. It's the same principle, but it's a little bit less bulky. It has a tiny uh, cord coming off the back of the hood. It looks kind of like a bike helmet and it attaches to a little battery pack that, that goes around your waist. This came out on the market probably a couple of years ago and a couple institutions have really uh, enjoyed this type of a system because it is less bulky. And then the face shield also uh, does not fog up. Um, that is connected to the helmet. So I hear a lot of good things about the uh, controlled air purifying system. You would use either of these or the N95 mask if you were going into a patient's room who was uh, under airborne respirator precautions. So what to wear and when. The PPE selection can be quite confusing, but it basically comes down to your level of risk. What are you going into the room to do? If you're going to have uh, a procedure or you're going into a room where there's a potential to be splashed or sprayed in any way, you need to take that into consideration uh, before uh, donning your PPE or choosing your PPE. In addition, you need to th think about the durability and the appropriateness for the task. And when I think of this item, I think of gloves. 
or sterile gowns. And so if you're going to have a procedure and you're going to be at the table, you're going to need to choose the sterile gown versus the disposable non-sterile. You're going to probably want to choose the best sterile gloves that maintain your dexterity and the sensitivity. And then next you need to think about fit. And when I think about fit, I think about that N95 mask that you need to be fit tested every year. When you are in a situation where you have to grab respirator equipment quickly, you need to make sure that you have the one that's appropriate for you. So if you have not been fit tested in the past year or you have been fit tested and you failed, those N95s are not for you either for whatever reason, it doesn't maintain a good seal or your facial shape does not, uh, it's not conducive to the N95, then you need to ensure that there's enough paper hoods, batteries, and belts for you in case you need to go into that room quickly. And the situation I think about this is in a code situation. You need to make sure that you have the proper equipment on your units so that anybody who needs to go into the room quickly um, has the proper equipment to do so. And lastly, you need to consider the type of isolation precautions. Are they contact precautions? Are they droplet? Are they airborne respirator? Are they a combination of all three? Those are some of the things you need to take into consideration before you don your gear. So when thinking about uh, respiratory illnesses that can be um, transmittable to others, you need to think in terms of droplet, airborne, and contact. And this, I'm talking in general terms, not just to COVID-19, but transmission can be direct or in indirect. It can come in the form of contact, droplet, or airborne from the limited time that we've had to study COVID-19, what is coming out is that it is primarily uh, transmitted through large droplets and contact from it transmission, but in addition is also transmitted in fine particles in the air. So with contact transmission, this occurs when someone coughs or maybe a vent circuit comes apart and those large particles disperse into the air and then they fall on a surface. So this can be a gown, this can be a bed rail, or another example is if somebody should cough um, and then cover their mouth with their hands and then touch a doorknob or touch the phone receiver or their cell phone. That is a contact surface. If somebody goes up and touches that contact surface, then maybe rubs their eyes, that's a way that that virus can be transmitted. Uh, another form is droplet transmission. These are heavier particles. These are generally um, anywhere greater than five to 10 microns. They can travel about three to six feet um, and then they begin to fall. But this is also a way to contact a virus. If it's by droplet uh, transmission, it's probably generally direct transmission. So maybe you're standing close to somebody who coughs or sneezes and they're not wearing a mask. This could be a mode of transmission. And thirdly is airborne transmission. These are finer particles. It's more like a mist. These are generally less than five microns. They can travel farther and they can last a little bit longer in the air because they're not as heavier like uh, larger droplets are. So I thought this was a great uh, picture showing how COVID-19 can be transmitted in all three forms, either contact, droplet, or airborne. This is just a diagram of someone coughing and sneezing and if you look at the coughing, it, it shows that those droplets can travel about 10 meters per second. Those are heavy droplets and then they'll begin to fall. If you sneeze, of course, those droplets travel farther and faster, right? Up to about six meters, some studies have shown. But when you look at the exhalation curve and how it drops off there, this is how contact transmission comes into play. Those heavier droplets fall to whatever surface is around you and then the next person will touch that surface 
and maybe rub their eyes or rub their nose, and then they could be exposed to COVID-19. Lastly is airborne transmission. You can see in the beginning when this person coughs or sneezes, those smaller particles kind of hover around in like a cloud formation. They can go farther and they kind of linger. These are the ones that would require someone to wear airborne respirator precautions to protect themselves from these aerosols. So when thinking about uh, airborne precautions and choosing the right precautions before you go into the patient's room, again, you need to think about the level of risk. And the level of risk always has to include these aerosol generating procedures. We do a lot of these at the bedside. Your patient may not always have these going on at any given time, um, but these are some of the things uh, that could happen that would make you change what you're going to wear. Some of them could be intubation, extubation, bronchoscopy. If your patient is on CPAP or BiPAP, which is forms of non-invasive ventilation, if your patient is having a TE at the bedside, or you need to induce some sputum, or you're uh, proning your patient. So your, your ventilated patient needs to go on their belly, and this is a high-risk procedure. Unfortunately, sometimes the circuits become disconnected and so that that person at the head of the bed can get splashed or sprayed with that positive pressure ventilation and those aerosolized particles could contaminate them. So in these situations, this is really when you need to choose your N95 respirator or your PAPR or your CAPR before you go into the room. So to give you an example here, uh, primarily, uh, our COVID-19 patients are in droplet contact precautions, meaning we uh, are mindful of those large droplets that are in the air as well as contact surfaces, or they can be in airborne respirator contact precautions. When it comes confusing, it becomes confusing as when your patient's in droplet contact precautions, but then you see someone walking in with maybe having donned an airborne respirator. And so what's the difference? When you go into your patient's room if they're not gonna have any of those aerosolizing procedures, that lowers your risk of uh, contamination by aerosols dramatically. And so you would only need to wear droplet contact precautions, which includes various forms of eyewear that you see here. You can choose a mask, gloves, disposable gown. Um, again, your own glasses do not serve as protective eyewear. But if you're going into that patient's room who is under droplet contact precautions, and let's say you're gonna give a nebulized treatment, in that instance, you're going to want to don for airborne respirator precautions. So you would not just wear a mask, a simple mask or a surgical mask. You will want to don an N95. You will want to have the proper eyewear. You can wear a disposable gown. Or if you uh, do not fit into an N95, you'll want to wear one of the purified air systems, such as a PAPR or a CAPR. Once that aerosolizing generating procedure is completed, you wait the allotted time uh, for those particles to disperse. The next time you go into the room, then you can go back to droplet contact if you're not going to be exposed to any aerosolizing procedures. That being said, generally most patients who are in the ICU are under airborne respirator contact precautions simply because that they are intubated. When a patient is intubated on a ventilator, even though they're not having any of those procedures that I listed uh, on the previous slide, the risk of that circuit coming apart and having an exposure to staff is much higher. And so I know at our institution, nearly all of our patients who are in the ICU who are intubated, or actually all who are intubated are on airborne respirator contact precautions. And that is it. Uh, if you have any questions, I would be happy to answer those for you at this time.
Sue, thanks for those updates. We will now continue to the listener Q&A. To submit questions for Sue about next week's topic, a continuation of PPE, please send questions to qa at dkbmed.com. If we are not able to address your question in this session, we will try to address it in another session. Okay, Sue, first question. Can we use gowns and surgical masks that have exceeded the manufacturer's expiration date? Do they offer the protection needed? That's a really good question. And of course, uh, in times of where we need to really be conservative with our PPE, this has come up a lot. Um, and the answer is yes and no. You have to really look at the product. The recent expiration dates are placed on products if that's a regulatory requirement. It doesn't mean that they don't work anymore. And so in our institution, we have used some products gone past their expiration date. One of the examples that I can give you are N95 masks. We have reused and we have repurposed them. We have re-sterilized them through UV methods. And now we're just starting the vaporized hydrogen peroxide method. That being said, you have to examine your gear as well. And so it needs to be, you need to ensure that it's going to stand up um, and protect you for when you walk into the room. So anytime you don any type of gear, you need to make sure your mask seals appropriately. If it's been cleaned by either the UV method or hydrogen peroxide method, you gotta make sure that it fits appropriately and it maintains a seal. You gotta check your gown and make sure there's no holes or tears in it. So you kind of have to look at it both ways. It's not a yes or a no, but certainly some products you can use past their expiration date as long as you ensure that they still fit you appropriately and protect you. Okay, great, thanks so much. And so here's our other question. What PPE would you recommend to someone as a minimum for taking care of a COVID-19 patient at home? You know, as a minimum, I would wear a mask on the patient and a mask on yourself and gloves. And um, just think about those three things and how uh, the virus uh, travels and is transmitted. It'll be by droplet, aerosol, and um, contact from it transmission. So just do your best to clean all those surfaces regularly on a daily basis, sometimes several times a day. If your loved one at home is coughing a lot or gets treatments at home, make sure that you have the appropriate mask on for that as well. Um, make sure you have the appropriate eye shields on if they're undergoing treatments at home. A lot of patients are, but if they're not, a mask and gloves uh, should just be all that you need. And just make sure that you clean those surfaces like um, we've all been told to do. So you should be just fine. Sue, thanks again for your contribution to the program. As a reminder, to claim CME or CE credit, please complete the evaluation at covid19.dkbmed.com and select today's activity. You'll receive your certificate immediately after. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. Don't forget to access our resource center at covid19.dkbmed.com. There you'll find information on the latest COVID-19 data and statistics, medical society guidelines, and resources in Spanish. Please be on the lookout for our next activity on Wednesday, May 20th, featuring Dr. Paul Allwater from Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. We will send out an email when it becomes available. Any questions can be submitted by sending to qa at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19.
Thanks, Sue, for answering those questions. And thank you again for your contribution to the program. Thank you for having me. Thank you.